All right, well, let's take our, take our Bibles and open to 1 Peter. <clears throat> Three weeks ago, we were finishing up this section <clears throat> in verses 7 to 11, and we, we didn't quite finish verse 11, and there's just no way we can skip over it quickly. It is rich because as Peter has been giving us this discussion of body life and the use of our gifts and how he's gifted all of us, you remember that it comes right in the center of discussions on how we respond to the hostility that's coming against Christians. And of course, that becomes very applicable to us today. And Peter is about to launch once again in verse 12 and following on the same discussion but with more nuance and, and more important truth for our hearts as persecution is on the rise. And so it's very interesting that he puts body life information, body life truth and principles right in the middle of all of that. That tells us that the church is to manifest the character of Christ in the midst of times when it is most challenging to do so. We are to manifest the character of Christ, most notably, as Peter brings out here, the truth of God and the power of God. The world doesn't have any truth, doesn't have any clarity, it suppresses the truth, it doesn't want accountability, it hates righteousness by nature. The church is the, the pillar and support of truth. So what the world ought to hear from us is the truth of God, the words of God, sometimes translated the oracles of God, a message from God, God himself. And they ought to see the power of God to transform sinners into those that behave like Christ and sinners that manifest the righteousness of our Lord. And so Peter puts it in here because we proclaim God's truth and manifest his power when the body of believers is engaged with one another for the purpose of strengthening each other in living for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, and it's familiar ground to us, Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider, that is to say, let us have the conviction that we are to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's why we live until we meet Christ in glory. We are constantly, as a conviction, looking for ways to motivate and encourage and stimulate one another to the love of Christ and manifested in the activities that demonstrate his power and demonstrate that we're no longer living like we used to do the bondage of the old life. And when our spiritual gifts are being used by the Lord to encourage and uphold and admonish and strengthen our faith, the result is that our holiness increases. And that's when the truth coming from this place is most penetrating to the heart of those in its path. Whatever God's going to do with our ministry, whatever he's going to do with your life, taking it out into the culture as you live there and work and in the marketplace and you endure the rising hostilities, 
the strengthened faith that comes from being in the gifted body life of the church, that is when those who watch it and are exposed to your life and this ministry get penetrated with the truth because they can't deny it. They can't deny the power of a transformed life. They can't deny the power to stop sin in its tracks, the power to live selflessly, the power to love sacrificially. When the church was constantly trying to be like the world and trying to attract the world, it, it neutered itself. We, we were the same as the world. The church was carnal and worldly and filled with a mixture of some very weak and atrophied believers alongside of a, a little bit more moral unbelievers. That's what happened in the pragmatic movement. So when the world looks at that, they, they literally say there's no power in that. There's a lot of talk, a lot of music, a lot of movement, maybe a lot of busy busyness like some of the churches warned in Revelation 2 and 3, but, but not a lot of power. No, it's when the body life is engaged in stirring one another up to love and good deeds, and the Spirit of God is working to do just that. Our holiness increases. God's truth gets clearer coming from our life and our lips. God's power becomes so much more vivid in the body. Unbelievers can't ignore it. They certainly can't deny it. That is the heart of the gospel. We proclaim the way, the truth, and the life. We proclaim him, the Lord Jesus. And he's exalted by this. He's, he's honored in this. He's glorified. He's, he's worshiped most when his word and his power are permeating our relationships. We have a lot going on in a very active ministry. There's people all over the place, people you don't know. There's, there's entire classes you've not been a part of, but you're a part of this one. And there's Bible studies spread out all over the place. And there's people coming and we're crowded and we're trying to play Jenga in the parking lot. I mean, <laughs> there's so much going on. What is the tendency when all that's happening? I want my way, I want my preferences, and we start to get petty and selfish, and this is why Peter says, no, 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 because the world, when it sees that, just says, see, you are just like my relationships at work. You're just like our family, which is broken and beaten up. You're just like everything else that goes on in our life. Peter says, no, no, and we're not to do that. Notice verse 11, as each one has received, uh, verse 10 rather, a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Then this, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter here has assured us that we have a spiritual giftedness, as we looked at last time, three weeks ago. And you recall from that study that the grace gifts of the Spirit are specific and they're very powerful enablements that are uniquely expressed through the obedient service of every believer. You have one, I have one. It's a unique combination. It is given by God, unique to us, and it is for building up other people in the faith. 
It's spirit empowered in that you don't have to crank up some way to manage somebody's spiritual life or sanctify them in the truth. You don't need to do anything other than serve humbly. And as you're serving with humility and and a godly desire to love and serve others, the spirit employs your giftedness. He employs your personality, your growing spiritual depth, your increasing skill in the word. And he infuses all of that with supernatural power to strengthen the faith of others in a way no one else does. We also learned last time, just continuing to refresh our minds, that building up others in this way is not an option. You are to employ it as a good steward. It's not just required, but it's a serious personal responsibility. The stewardship, as we looked at last time, is directly given by God, and it's to bear spiritual fruit. God wants to bear spiritual fruit, and we are given the gift to do just that through the power of the Spirit. So we give ourselves to it. It's a privilege. These grace gifts are a privilege, and God says, I want to use them. So it's not an option. And Peter then, if you remember, he, he, all, he puts all of sort of the combination of gifts that are categorized in other passages like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. He puts, Peter puts them in two overarching categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. And he doesn't give us anything more specific than that. But basically, there are some in the church who will be given gifts that will give the truth in a unique way, and there are others who will not do that particular area. They will serve the needs of the body in a way that builds the body. And since the context of this passage is the local assembly, especially the formal meetings when they come together for worship like we are now, then fellowship and praise and prayer and proclamation and communion and baptism are happening and you have in our midst those that are going to be about the words of grace and they're going to be those who are uniquely gifted in this other overarching category, the works of grace. Let's just for a moment think about how Peter puts it here. Notice if you're keeping an outline, the words of grace. The speaking gifts we'll call the words of grace. Whoever speaks. Now, this is very interesting because sometimes people will ask me, can we tell the difference between this gifting and all the time we spend with each other just talking and sharing in the Christian life? Well, Peter thinks you can make a distinction. We're all in discipleship. We're all to share the truth. We're all to speak those things. But there are passages in the New Testament where these gifts definitely refer to things like preaching and teaching, gifts of exhortation that are actually identifiable, a certain unique combination of wisdom and understanding and even discernment. There are gifts in the New Testament, New Covenant people of God, that you would put in those categories because they have a little more specificity than Peter gives it here. So perhaps we could understand the speaking gifts this way. The, the speaking gifts are obviously given for, we could say, clearly and compellingly articulating God's truth. Clearly and compellingly articulating God's truth, but particularly in the body, in a teaching or preaching dynamic. So I kind of 
think of it this way. When I want to identify if someone might be given a unique ability by the Spirit to, to go into this category of gifts, I, I ask these questions. Is this person with this speaking gift able to clearly articulate biblical truth to others so that listeners, typically in a group, understand exactly what God intends and they grasp how to apply the truth for their spiritual benefit. You're not, you're not going to gravitate towards someone who stands up and says they have a speaking gift, but they can't clearly articulate truth, biblical truth, so that listeners go away saying, I understand clearly what God intends and I know how to apply it to my spiritual benefit. Let's narrow it down a little further. The second question I ask is, is the teacher able to definitively and clearly refute subtle and blatant doctrinal errors? In other words, in the speaking gifts, you have someone that has discernment and uh, a measure of the ability to look at doctrine in the scripture and see error coming, and they can protect the sheep from confusion and deception. I would put that in the category of the speaking gifts. And then maybe one other question, maybe a little more nuanced. Is this person able to clearly bring edifying spiritual insights from God's word to the specific needs of believers so that their discernment increases and they're compelled to obey Christ? It's a little bit like the first question, but I, I separate it out because I want to know if a person's gifts are increasing the spiritual insight and discernment of the people that are under their teaching. I think about it sometimes, people who, who might be trying to figure out where, whether or not they might have speaking gifts in the church. Some men and women, they apprehend the truth quite well and they grow in it, and they can offer an encouraging word or an admonishment to others in the normal day-to-day -day Christian discipleship relationships and friendship. But if they were put in a place where they had to teach a, co a collection of God's people in some Bible study or preach in a context similar to this or a worship service, the truth that they clearly grasp in their mind and heart doesn't come out as clearly. Somehow it kind of gets garbled when we're in seminary and we're listening to guys and we're evaluating strengths and limitations and weaknesses. If somebody comes through the seminary because they love to study theology, but they don't have a speaking gift, it becomes kind of apparent because you could sit down and talk to them about the truth and they would understand it, but they can't stand up in front of, it's not such a crowd thing as much as it is being able to lead the group in clarity. That is a gift enablement given by the Spirit of God. According to Peter, God has uniquely wired the minds and dispositions of some that the way they think about truth and the way they teach it, the rest of us collectively grasp it and are effectively compelled by it. Now, Peter says, don't mute the gift. Whoever speaks, let him do it. And he's going to tell us with what disposition we ought to do it, but I find it interesting that he, he sort of forcefully says you're to employ your gift as a good steward, and if you have this gift, do not mute it. If you have the giftedness to speak truth, it's obvious to those who hear you. People have said it. It's obvious that that's how the Spirit uses you to strengthen others. 
You might not be called to full-time pastoring. You might not have a formal role in teaching a Bible study or a class, but you need to be growing in your skills in the Word because if God uses you that way to teach others the truth and edify them, you need to use that gift. Now, just having said that, a word of caution, some Christians who are immature, they crave the spotlight. They, they come to us, they say, I have that gift. And uh, you, you want to know, this is not a significance contest. This isn't a prominence and status kind of thing. The role of a speaking gift is burdened. It's burdened with the truth. It's heavy. Elders are a safeguard to that because we are in that category and we help others evaluate their usefulness. And let's not forget James chapter 3, verse 1. Don't let many of you become teachers because theirs is a stricter judgment. So if somebody out there thinks, hey, he just said use my gift. I have that gift. Nobody's following you, but you think you have the gift. <laughs> you're not compelling anybody because you're kind of immature and prideful or you think you know the truth, but you're untested. Yeah, you probably better wait before you decide. And you might want to think about James 3, 1. Eh. It's a stricter judgment. There's people teaching all over the internet that are not very clear, and they're going to answer for every careless word, James or Matthew 12, 36 says. That's frightening. So, James, so Peter says, don't mute the gift. He also says, don't undermine it. Look at this. If, if any of you speaks, let him speak as one who speaks the utterances of God. If you have speaking gifts in the church and you can be used this way, you're not to undermine the gift by imagining that this is about humans talking to humans. You are a human vessel, but the content is God's. This is a message from God. Some of your translations say oracles. Literally in the Old Testament, as you sort of sweep through that terminology, yes, it is referred to... Uh, as the law of God given at various times. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 7 as that. In Romans chapter 3, it's the word of God in the Old Testament given to Israel, Romans 3 verse 2. And the foundational principles of salvation truth coming from the Old Testament all the way into the New Covenant. Hebrews 5 verse 12 calls them the oracles, the elementary things of the oracles of God. By the time you get to the New Testament and even some of the Greek translations of the Old Testament, the whole meaning is the word of God or a message from God. Peter's not talking about the person having some aura about them. Some cultures you go to, they think the power is in the speaker. Charismatic movements uh, think that the power is in the speaker. No, the power is in God's truth and clarity is the job of the speaker. The supernatural enablement in taking the truth and putting it into your mind so that you're renewed is the Spirit's power and prerogative. I can't do that. He does that. But here, Peter is making the point that those who preach and teach and explain God's Word are to be focused on the reality that they're speaking truth of Almighty God. Sometimes people come into a church where the Word of God is exposited and they say, it's too definitive. It's too authoritative. <laughs> hey, 
If somebody's berating people, if some so-called pastor is bludgeoning the sheep with his own personality, he needs to move on, get out of there. But if a pastor is studying God's word and expounding it to you, it is not just going to be authoritative. I have the job of exhorting you not to ignore it, right? Titus says, let no one disregard you, Timothy or Titus. I want you to speak these things with all authority. Don't let them disregard you. Exhort, right, there's to be a shepherd's heart in that. But the speaker, the, the one with the speaking gifts in the church, whatever context it may be in, is to be aware fundamentally that he has a message from God to give. By the way, if you come from a church where it was just human opinions, I'm glad you're here. You need to be away from somebody who pontificates and just tells opinions. And you know that because if you're here and have stayed here, that's what the Spirit of God has done in your heart. You want that. You want God's truth. You want to hear from God. Human opinions are out, Peter says. Carelessness is out. Superficial counsel is out. If you have that kind of gift, you should be using it and focusing on the work of the Spirit, empowering you to teach and admonish and encourage others with the very message of God for that specific moment. That is amazing. Wherever and however it comes, in whatever context, if you have that gifting in that category, the best that we can describe it, if you're sensitive to the use of it and serving humbly, you should know you are giving and delivering a message from God, from his word for that moment, for that person. The Spirit has designed that moment. It's a divine appointment. It's providential. God is doing things. That's why when somebody gets angry at a sermon and they just get up and they walk out, is God not doing something? Preachers get all nervous about that. Oh, I must have said something wrong. Oh, you know. God is doing something. A message from God is it's like the sun. It, it hardens the clay and melts the wax. God is doing something. There are no throwaway moments then, Peter says. Clarify the truth. Patiently explain it again. There are no throwaway moments. Speak that passage that came to mind. Don't be self-conscious. Get yourself out of the way. Think about the fruit God will produce. There are no throwaway moments. And don't manipulate. Refute a dangerous error knowing that God's truth is a sharp two-edged sword. You're the mouthpiece for God. This is unfathomable. And don't you know that Peter's about to describe greater hostility on the rise? That's why he wanted this just before he goes into that whole section. Because we're going to have to tell the people with speaking gifts, get after it. They're going to try to shut the speaking gifts down. No, you have a message from God. Words of grace. Don't mute the gift. Don't undermine the gift. Notice also what Peter says here. 
the works of grace, the serving gifts. Peter says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Whoever serves, let him do so. So we could say it this way, don't stifle the gift. Don't mute the speaking gift. Don't stifle the serving gift. This is where we get our translation of the word deacon. It is the term that, that means to pick up a service or meet a need. Since the context, again, is everyone in the church, then Peter's referring more to more than just the special office of a deacon here, which is an official role in the church for giving attention to the details of the church behind the scenes so that, so that the elders can pray and study the word and shepherd the flock. But as Peter applies the word here, he means this. He means all of the manifold ways that believers interact with one another in love so that we are all built up in our faith and walk with Christ. So all the people in the serving category who we would not then see up in front of the church with the speaking gifts, these gifts are being used as part of the body where discipleship and meeting personal needs and praying with and for the burdens and needs of the saints, logistics of ministry life, responding with help to some crisis, coming alongside someone with counsel and testimony to encourage and uplift and caution and warn. These are the serving gifts. And it's everything that our body, in all of its unique personalities and all of its unique skills, and all of its unique talents and experiences, all that that brings to our lives individually makes up the body and the Spirit says He empowers all of you in a special way when you humbly reach out in love for the sake of others. Do not stifle the gift. God is doing something. And underneath the idea of the works of grace, I'll say this, don't strip the gift. Don't strip the gift. Look at what Peter says. I want you, when you're using these serving gifts, I want you to do it, I want you to serve by the strength which God supplies. Notice the the singularity of it. God supplies it. He alone supplies it. Now, this is, of course, a very interesting challenge for us. We tend to strip our service of its fruitfulness because quite often our labor turns into something merely human and fleshly and self-serving. And Peter is saying, that's not, what I want this, that's not what I want to happen in the body. I want all of the serving gifts to be on full throttle. I want the speaking gifts to be on full throttle because when they are, a unique reflection of the truth and power of God is on display. So don't strip the gift by turning your labors into something that matches your little world and your little selfish tendencies. 
He says, in order to serve the needs of the body as the Spirit's gifted you, you're going to need to draw enduring strength from the only place you can get it, God himself. Now that's interesting. Why would God have to supply us strength to do this? Because we don't have it and we already see that we don't have it. I, I get tired. You get fatigued. You get worn out. You get selfish. You get petty. You, you compare your gifts with others. You, you get all lost in your own personal sorrows. And when trials come into your life, everything goes to the sidelines and you hang it up because you're discouraged and somebody offended you and you're not going to reach out over here because it's just too hard. And on and on and on it goes. And so... All of that, Peter, more than implies, is outside of the strength which God supplies. You're going to need enduring strength from the only place you can get it. So easy to grind out an act of sacrifice, isn't it? Sure, I'll do it. Sure, yeah. There's no, there's no real selfless love in it. In fact, sometimes the whole time you're doing it, it's grumbling and or you can't wait till it's over. So it's half-hearted. You're not really all there and, and you have your limit, right? I mean, you, you go in to serve, sure, I'll do it. And then suddenly the need starts encroaching on what you plan to invest. Suddenly the Spirit of God is bringing more need to your plate than you could have ever thought you were ever going to have to meet. And so you start drawing lines. And suddenly this sacrificial service is a grind. But then it's not a sacrifice, is it? Sometimes we're quick to take what God is doing and just make it what we're doing. It's my ministry. Peter says, I want you to take everything about you out of the equation. Other than humble, full-throttle love, other than offering your life to Christ on the altar of service, right? Romans 12, you offer your whole life as a sacrifice acceptable to God, an act of worship. That's what he wants. And the circumstances are not to dictate what you will or will not do. If you're going to serve in the strength supplied by God with the gift, then you're going to have to take your own preferences and your own human willpower and your own assessment of where you think it's worth your time and effort. You're going to have to take all that out of it. And he's talking about spiritual strength here. So you're not, you're not talking about the lack of fatigue. You're going to be fatigued. He's not guaranteeing that you're always going to pop out of bed ready to serve 10 people today at your own expense with no thanks from them. This is fatiguing. That's the whole point. When hostility comes, guess what we're going to have to do for one another? We're going to have to go meet needs that we never had to meet before. Somebody's going to be in the courtroom being accused of something and others are going to be jailed. And for the gospel's sake, we're going to have to help school people's children because they can't go to the schools in our area because they're, they're teaching doctrines of demons to our children and grandchildren. We're going to have to organize things and we're going to have to step up and start taking care of one another in ways we hadn't had to. Suddenly our lives aren't going to be so uh, isolated 
and then only here at church we're together, suddenly we're going to be thrown together in the hostility of a godless culture much more. That means we're going to have to meet needs at a, at a level we haven't met yet. And so it's not talking about physical fatigue. Of course, our life is going to be disrupted by the work that is so needed to strengthen the faith of others in the body of Christ in the coming days. In fact, disruption is going to be the issue. And Peter says we're to remember that every service rendered, every need met, every true act of love and ministry is designed by God for you in the moment because you have a special gift and he's put that person in your life to meet that need in those moments and he's supplying the power to make spiritual fruit grow from it. That's what Peter wants us to remember. Stop looking at things from your own perspective. Stop looking at things as whether or not your physical fatigue and all of that. You just can't do it anymore. Just trust the Lord. Serve the needs in front of you because you know God is going to supply the strength to meet that need if God has put it in your, in your path. That also means then that if you're serving like this, as Peter says, it can't be about your reputation. It can't be about being known for your service, which is another temptation in our hearts. Man, I've, I've served this family. I've served this need. Nobody says thank you to me. No, it's just thankless. It just gets old. I mean, I see other people getting praised for what they're doing, and I, I get nothing. Nobody's even mentioned it. Here I am, Lord, behind the scenes. Do you think you could talk to me? No one else is. That's where our heart goes. But it can't be about your reputation because you are serving by the strength which God supplies. If he's supplying the strength, he's also the motivation. His work in the moment is what moves us to do it. Nor can it be about the results we want to see. I know sometimes we draw a line because when we serve and serve and serve and somebody just keeps slapping it away and pushing it away or not really, they're not really uh, embracing yet the work that God is trying to do through you to serve them, um, we, we basically measure it by human standards. Well, I have a limit. I have a limit. It reminds me of, of when the disciples were talking with the Lord. Can you imagine the shock that must have come when they said, how often should we forgive? And man, it's like three times? Seven times? Right? The standard in the Old Testament was three times, and you lop it off. Cut them off. The apostles were pretty big-headed. Oh, yeah, it can't be three because that's the Old Testament law. We're in the New Covenant. Seven? <laughs> and Jesus basically says endless. Endless. That's what this reminds me of. You can't measure your service by your own human standards because you're going to get to the point where your motives are just so mixed and then it's really all about your own evaluation and so now it becomes petty. Nor, beloved, can it be for the reason that some of you sit on the sideline, the perception that you're not adequate to meet a need. If you have a servant gift, 
then you have the strength which God supplies at your disposal and you have the gift to meet that need. If God brings that to your plate, all you gotta do is humbly give yourself to it, roll up your sleeves and go get it. The supply is promised by God to strengthen you in the ministry. So it can't be you making the excuse, well, I don't have what it takes. Some of you who are easily discouraged need to think about that. can't be about comparing yourself with another's gifts or usefulness. We saw that last time from 1 Corinthians 12. So the words of grace and the works of grace, we're not to mute the truth of God and we're not to strip the works of God of the strength which God supplies by getting in the way. We're not to do that. See, Pastor, how can we keep all of that at the center of our hearts? So glad you asked. Look at verse 11. So that, so here's our target. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. So now we know no glory to us, all to God. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, basically, if you just do a sweeping study of that in the scriptures, it, it basically comes down to this, to live and serve our God in such a manner that it displays the supreme worthiness and majesty of God. So in your life, at your job, in your service for others, in your sacrifice, in how you live and how you spend your money, how you direct your life, the decisions you made, uh, you make, the way you share with the lost about gospel truth, everything about our life is to display the supreme worthiness of our God. Nothing else compares to his worthiness. And so Peter just sits it right here and says, you're to be motivated by living in such a way that the, the Lord, the God of our redemption, Christ in God is glorified and his is the glory and the dominion and the power. So it's interesting, They're, they've got hostility coming down on them and he's saying, don't worry, the, the world isn't full of any strength to overthrow God. His is the dominion, his is the power. But I love the fact that Peter puts this in the context of gifts. Peter is saying that we speak the truth of God and serve in the power of God so that the body of Christ is built up in that truth and power. Our faith is becoming more robust. Our convictions are deeper and more immovable. Worship becomes more vibrant. And I just have to, I have to commend the body as, I'm, as I thought through these ways that a body builds itself up. I have seen this so marvelously in our church. I've seen Christians who come here looking to be fed and they get fed. They come here looking to have their faith built up and it is strengthened, it isn't destroyed. They come here and they listen to the truth and people shepherd them and people come in with problems and somebody is coming alongside them. I've seen convictions deepen. I've seen humble and selfless service. I've seen prayer rising from this con congregation that is fruitful and that is faithful and consistent. The holiness of the core of this church 
church and even the believers coming in is greater and greater. And we rejoice in truth and the power of God such that when we sing, it just lifts the roof. We love it so much. We love Christ. I love that. That doesn't mean that we can't become atrophied. He says that all things, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So God wants our fellowship to exalt the person and the character and the ministry of Jesus Christ to his people. Look at Hebrews 13 for a moment and we'll just sort of wrap up our study with this. This would be a bit of an explanation even further of what we've just we've just seen Peter talking about. Notice in Hebrews 13 verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So here he's talking about Christ and the work of redemption, which is the work of our God of peace. May this God of peace equip you, verse 21, in every good thing to do his will. So this is a prayer that God would equip you, strengthen you, motivate you, push you, make you very active and then this, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. It's his work. Through Jesus Christ, that is our salvation and our redemption and our ongoing sanctification. And look at this. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here you have sort of a benediction, an explosion of praise that is very similar to what Peter says here. Back to 1 Peter, just to tie it off. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes people think, we gotta, we got to figure out to whom. What's the antecedent? Is it God the Father or is it Jesus Christ? And certainly there are reasons to say, well, Jesus Christ is the immediate antecedent, so we must be talking about Christ deserves the dominion and the glory. And others would say, yeah, but the whole verse is about the strength which God supplies in the giving of the gift, so it must be, mean God the Father deserves the glory and the power. Personally, because Peter doesn't make it clear, I would call this an inspired ambiguity. It isn't supposed to tell us. We're not supposed to focus on anything other than the motivation for our service. Of course the glory and dominion belongs to God the Father, and the glory and dominion belongs to Jesus Christ, who is God. The Spirit left the antecedent ambiguous so that we don't miss the point of how using our gifts puts the truth of God and the power of God on display. That's the point. And beloved, that is how we are to be filled with hope and focused. That's what we titled this whole section, filled with hope and focused. So that when we suffer at the hands of those who hate the truth and those who think that they can deny the power or come against the power of God, when that is happening, 
God's truth through the speaking gifts and God's power in the serving gifts will be unmistakable in the lives of his people. And Peter knows that the moment that raises greater hostility, the temptation is to just scatter and hide. Here's what we're going to do as hostility increases. We're going to intensify for the glory of God what we have been strengthened and gifted to intensify. We're going to come together and speak truth and serve one another. We're going to pray to God that we're able to do that. Why? Because our God has the dominion. We're not to be frightened by the world. Let the lions roar. Our God is the owner of it all. To him belongs the dominion. He owns it. It's his. It's never not been his. From him, through him, to him are all things. Even in his earthly ministry and humiliation, Christ came out of the grave. And what does Philippians 2 tell us? He is exalted. His name is exalted above every name. He has the dominion. And when he comes, as he has been ministering by his spirit through his people, when he comes, he will demonstrate the full power of it. And in the meantime, guess what? We have the same power that made the universe, the same power that will establish his kingdom when he comes, the same power that has made everything and continues to uphold and sustain everything, that same power exists in every believer to accomplish these things. Beloved, if, you, if your fear has crippled you, you need this truth. And you probably ought to just get up in your Christian life, so to speak, Roll up your proverbial sleeves. Confess that you've been fearful of man and what's going on around us and say, Lord, I want to serve and speak as I'm gifted to serve and speak. And I know I won't be perfect, but the strength which you supply will sustain me and you're going to use me to build the body up for the time that is coming. That is what we're called to do and to be. And on the heels of that, Peter then says to them, I know you're going through a hellish persecution, but don't be surprised. Verse 12, don't be surprised. It comes upon you for your testing. It's not something strange happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice exponentially. You're going to make everything of Christ when it comes if you have submitted to his spirit in the work until it gets here. You keep rejoicing. No matter what happens to us, we need to be a rejoicing fellowship. Amen? That's for next time. Lord, thank you for your grace in this word from our beloved brother Peter. Thank you for this entire section that you have just dropped wonderfully in the middle of all this instruction on submission and humility and
suffering well, so important for us. We are so often distracted and driven by rebellious hearts that don't want to face any trouble. And we've been a soft culture. And churches have have fallen into those traps. Lord, strengthen us. We know you don't test us to crush and smother our faith. You strengthen our faith in it. May we serve and speak and, and love one another in this way sacrificially and may it be your strength that we depend upon and not our own, your words that we speak and not our own. And all of it, may we do it to make much of you and to demonstrate that you're, you're supreme in your worthiness in our lives. Thank you for this fellowship and the hard labor that they have done for your name's sake, how it has honored you and how you've used it. Protect us from the evil one and keep us thinking and praying and pondering and, and moving forward in these things. We pray in the name of our Savior to whom belongs the glory and the dominion. God's people said, amen. amen.